Okay, let's turn in our Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to forge ahead in our series we just started on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We just laid a a foundation last week. We did an introduction, kind of just walked through a simple outline of this sermon, Jesus' first public sermon. And really the central teaching that Jesus gave while he was on the earth in his earthly ministry. This, this teaching is uh, this important. It's, it's, it's the centerpiece from, all the, uh, from which all the other teachings he gave spring out of. They either develop parts of it or, or clarify parts of it, uh, you know, or, or, you know, undergird it. And so uh, this sermon, it's the starting point for everything else he taught. It's, it's uh, that important. And oftentimes we're familiar with the phrases, but we haven't really taken lots of time to uh, investigate what these phrases actually mean. And so uh, I'm, I am, uh, I think part of my life's message is to call people to understanding and living the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that that's truly where uh, a ministry is, um, how you gauge the effectiveness of a ministry. How much the followers actually live the Sermon on the Mount uh, is a gauge of the effectiveness of, of a ministry on the earth. Because this is Jesus' key teaching from which all the others spread. Well, therefore, that needs to be the key teaching that the church is calling people to in a variety of forms. And so uh, today we're going to begin to just work through uh, what's known as the Beatitudes. I like to call them the core values. Uh, To be quite honest, I never quite understood that word Beatitude. It's an attitude you're supposed to be, I guess. Uh, Core values is kind of the standard way we understand someone who's establishing a business or a government. They have a system of values that are the basis from which that government or that, that organization operate. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in Matthew 5 as he begins to explain the kingdom that he's of and the value system. The very first thing he does is he lays out the eight core values. And so uh, we're going to begin to work through these today and uh, don't want to bog you down, but it's going to take us a few weeks just to get through these eight. They are the, the cornerstone of the whole sermon. And so You've got to give them uh, quite a bit of attention, and the truth be told, as I begin to look at them, I just can't get past spending a bit of time in them. They're, they're that rich, and they're, they're very easy just to breeze over and think you kind of got it, and, uh, but I think it requires a, a, a moment to, to meditate, and to consider, to ask the Lord to, to form these in our own hearts, and so... Um, Here's the deal. The core values, they not only set up the cornerstone of the the expected lifestyle of the kingdom, they're not only the values of the kingdom of God, they're actually Jesus' own value system, which it makes sense. He's not going to set up a kingdom with a value system that's different than his own. And so what he's setting up here. It's not just a good way to run things. It's actually the way he, he lives and what he values, his own value system. So it's not simply an organizational value system. It's what he likes. It's what he's into. And so in the core values, we find Jesus. In the core values, we find Jesus. We find what moves his own heart. And, uh, and that's important that we're not just approaching these as a list of do's and don'ts, but that we actually approach them as the values of the heart of the man Christ Jesus and the cornerstone of the kingdom of God, of the culture of the kingdom of God. So uh, let's just do this. Let's just read through them. Let's just read through these eight, and then we'll come back, and I'll do my best to make it through two of them. How about that? All right. Verse 1, seeing the multitude, Matthew 5, verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. 
Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll just keep reading to verse 12, because these next two verses underscore the last core value of persecution. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow. Blessed are you. Just look at that one. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and this is the one that always kind of gets me, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. In other words, the guy knows he's lying about you, but he does it anyway. He says, you're blessed. You're blessed when you're persecuted. You're blessed when you're reviled. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, I realized when I first started studying this a few years back, as I was just laying those things out and what Jesus declares blessed, the very first thing that occurred to me was, well, what he says is blessed and what I say is blessed are two completely different things. I think, you know, blessed equals I get more stuff or things are easier for me. Or I get a raise, or I don't know, people like me more, or something. Good things, you know. I don't think blessed is when people make up lies about me and just tell them. And I realize, as I started studying this, wow, the things that he says are blessed and the things that I think are blessed are completely opposite. I don't think mourning is blessed. I like happiness. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't like happiness too. I mean, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. But he's, he's, he is speaking a blessing over those that live this style of life in this age. And he's declaring that, that lifestyle as blessed. And I I'm still struggling with the truths of that because I recognize that what I tend to to pursue and and what I tend to desire uh, doesn't tend to be what he outlined here. And so it's a a continual tension and conflict, a values conflict, I would say especially for those that live in the West, especially those of us who are used to prosperity and comfort and we live our life by phrases like the pursuit of happiness. And uh, the Lord identifies a value system for the kingdom that's different than that. And so it becomes a bit of a, a conflict, a little bit of a collision, really, in the value systems. So my very first thought was, man, if he says that's blessed and I think this is blessed, I need to get a scriptural lens on what blessed really means. What does the Bible say blessed equals? So that I can get my mind renewed to the word. And I would encourage you, if you've got a, if you've got a computer Bible, just do this little exercise. Type in blessed is, and see the verses, and just read through all of them. And type in, type in blessed are. Blessed is and blessed are. And just read all those verses. It'll be about 100 verses. And I've read them all. And you will be, uh, it's an eye-opener. Let's just say it that way. It's an eye-opener, what the scripture describes as blessed. Now, some of the verses are real 
you know, sort of generic. Blessed is the man who tr- whose trust is in the Lord. You go, amen, I trust you, Lord, I'm blessed. And then some of them are real, like, pointed, and they're not necessarily what we think of as blessed, like these here in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let me just read through a few blessed is and blessed are verses so we can redefine what blessing is with a biblical lens. Blessing isn't always about what makes us feel the most comfortable. Blessing isn't always about what increases us financially or relationally. Is there, any, is there anybody here? Okay, there are people here. Good, I am. We're all in the right room, right? Okay. Blessing isn't always about what makes me feel more comfortable. And it's not always about what increases me relationally or financially. Amen. Thank you, brother. I received that amen. Do I get another? Okay, here we go. So I'm just going to read through a few of these. Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Blessed is the man who gets corrected. And the Lord, he, he expounds on this a couple different places in Scripture about his, his application of correction is for those whom he loves. In Proverbs and in Hebrews, and he talks about how I only correct the ones I love. And oftentimes we look at correction as rejection from the Lord. But he said, no, you're blessed when you go through correction and chastening. You're blessed because the Lord is teaching you his, his ways, His laws. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Having a good tremble in your heart is blessed. There's a, a little bit of a... Um, I get concerned, I'll just say it that way. I get concerned when believers seem to lack that sense of awe about God. Now we are, we are the family of God. He is our father. He and Jesus is our bridegroom. And there is an intimacy that, that we share with the Lord that is, I mean, unmatched in any other relationship. But even in that, and he is so tender and so kind, and, and I mean, he, he draws us with loving kindness. Even in that, you've got to realize that the one that you're intimate with is a consuming fire. In other words, because he's kind, because he's tender, you can't forget that he's an, an all-consuming fire, a jealous God. That tremble has got to be resident in our hearts. We can't get this familiarity with God and just act like whatever. You know, we just, you know, just treat God like, a, like anyone else. I mean, we come to him as we are. And, and he, is, he is big enough to be able to handle the reality of us. But you've got to remember you're coming to the one who is uncreated. Uncreated. Somebody asked me about preaching the tension of the kindness and the mercy of the Lord and the fierceness and the justice of the Lord. And they said, do you think, you know, there's a, a way that, you know, we've maybe preached him too tender or too, too fierce. And my answer is this. I don't think you can preach the Lord tender enough. I don't think you can preach him kind enough. And I don't think you can preach him fierce enough. He is incredibly sweet and tender and incredibly ferocious. He's both. And our hearts need to go, oh my gosh, he likes me. Oh my gosh, he likes me. Blessed is the man who who fears the Lord. Psalm 41, verse 1. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. How blessed is he who considers the helpless, who looks with mercy and tenderness upon those who are in need. 
How blessed is that one? You know, you might see somebody who spends their whole life reaching out to people and challenging life circumstances, oppression or homelessness or poverty or drug addiction. You might think, wow, they, they really didn't live much of a life. You know, they just kind of spent their whole life, you know, serving the poor or whatever. The Lord declares a definitive blessing on the one who considers the helpless, who offers help to those that have no way to get it. How blessed is he who considers the helpless? How how different does that look when we think of the guy that's blessed with the six-plus-figure income, driving the car in the big house, corporate exec? We go, wow, the Lord's really blessing that man. Well, the Lord goes, blessed is he who's, who's spending their life considering those who have no other way to get through life, the helpless. It looks like foolishness to men. James 1.12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. <laughs> you know, you're just going through it. Everything's going wrong. My wife's Facebook post the other day said something like, I burned the dinner, I was late to practice, and I forgot the this and that. And she goes, but it's okay now. And the Lord would say, James 1.12, blessed is the mom who makes it through a rough day and is still happy in heart. But it's even more than that. Perseveres under trial. I just think about this, beloved. So often when we go through trials and circumstances and challenges, how, how the, uh, the natural movement of our heart is to sort of get frustrated with the Lord. Oh, Lord, why do I have to go through this? How come you're not swooping in and delivering me? Why do I have to go through these difficult situations? He goes, I'm trying to bless you. I'm trying to help you out. Help me out. I've got this and this and this. Where are you? He goes, I'm right here. I'm trying to pronounce a blessing on you. Persevere through the trials. Blessed is a man who perseveres through trials. For once he's been approved, once he makes it through with a good confession, without denying the Lord, or once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Look, when you're going through it, listen, don't waste it. When you're going through a trial or a challenge, don't waste it by complaining and, and, and getting an entitlement mentality and saying, I deserve more than this. Don't waste the trial. The trial is God trying to get you eternal rewards. I promise you, he is trying to get you eternal rewards. You're going to show up on that day and, and, you know, some little saint who suffered their whole life, the Lord is going to bring out this, you know, stack of crowns and heavenly rewards. And we're going to walk out and go, oh man, never heard of them. If, if they got it, man, what's the Lord got for me? And we walk on out and we go, huh? He goes, here's a heavenly nickel. Where's my stack of crowns? He goes, oh, you wasted all the trials by complaining and with your entitlement mentality. You wasted all the trials. I can't reward that. Perseveres under trials. And when he's been approved, the Lord will give him the crown of life. Matthew 5.11. This is New American Standard Version. Blessed are you when people insult you. When they insult you. Well, that's an ugly shirt. Thank you. (laughs) Feeling blessed already. (laughs) Man, you got a crooked nose. Look like an old witch. Amen. Thank you. Who cut your hair? Two-year-old? Thank you. Blessed you when when they insult you. I 
I've never felt blessed when I got insulted. But if we take it and recognize that it's an opportunity to live the values of the kingdom in the middle of the insult, in the middle of the persecution, in the middle of the trial, that will, listen, it's currency. It will translate into rewards. It's spiritual currency. Every persecution you get is currency that will be paid back to you in the age to come. Don't waste it. Don't complain about it. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here's the thing. We have so much opportunity to stand for the Lord and then the persecutions come and allow those persecutions to form our character. Come on. To chasten our heart. To cause us to lean into God in meekness and to to give us eternal rewards, blessings the Lord declares over us. But how often, listen, when we're getting persecuted, how often do we turn around and make a case as to why that person was wrong? And justify ourselves, we waste the persecution, justifying ourselves, and we forfeit eternal reward. Am I communicating? He goes, no, you're blessed. And notice that he says, for my name's sake. Some of those examples I gave a minute ago, they don't really fit that. But it's, he goes, it's for my name's sake. He goes, when they insult you because you're following me. When they persecute you because you're following me. You know, and this isn't about you, you know, just act all crazy. Or, you know, you just, you just act in a way that just is, uh, you know, just, just you go off and do something kind of crazy and, you, and then you go, oh, they're all persecuting me. This is not about being brash or arrogant. This is about you're living for Jesus. You're serving the Lord and that's bringing the persecution. And trust me, if you live for the Lord with a heart of meekness, humility, and love, that's not gonna always get you everybody liking you. It's just, it's not. It's it's actually a value of the kingdom. It's set up to draw fire. Because here's why. We're all meek when nobody is shooting at us. We can, everybody can act humble. Well, most of us can act humble. But we really get to see what kind of humility we've got when actually we're getting assailed and persecuted. And people are lying about us. Then we get to see what it's really like. When the pressure's on, then the reality of our Christianity is on display. Don't imagine your, the, the, the quality of your Christianity is on display when everything's easy. The quality of your Christianity is on display when everything's difficult. I'll skip some, through some of these because they're just a little... I've hit the point already. I don't need to... Keep hitting it. The final one I just want to mention is Matthew eleven six, 6, where Jesus says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And I thought about that. For the Lord to say that one, that there's a blessing on those that don't get offended because of him, it lets us know that serving the Lord, speaking the truth in love, Following the word is not going to be always something that's palatable to everybody. It's something that many will get offended by. And we see it in Jesus' earthly ministry. Many were offended and quit walking with him just when he came out and spoke truth. Well, how much more when his, when his disciples, when we follow him and just say what he said and just, just follow the scripture, how much more is that going to be offensive? He goes, blessed are you if you're not offended. At me. And for us, it translates into this Blessed are you when you don't get offended because people are offended at you. We serve him and we just give our hearts for him, and it's all for his glory, and that will be offensive. Don't be offended by it. So that helps me. Going through those thoughts helps me 
to sort of get a different lens on blessing. The Lord values things that are different than what we value in the West. We can't get our lens of what blessing equals through the Western value system. We've got to derive the lens of what blessing equals from the Scripture. And so when we get a broader base of what the Scripture says about blessing, then we can actually digest what he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I want to just take the rest of our time now and just begin to work through these values. Now that we've kind of got a, a, a better, a broader understanding of what blessing or blessed is, I want to work through the first couple at least and, um, and just develop them a bit. So Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now for you studiers, you're going to find a very similar discourse to what you find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in Luke 6. Okay, you're going to find a very similar discourse, uh, a very, uh, very similar preaching points. Now here's the thing, the Luke 6 version is a different occasion. Okay, you got to kind of land that. And it's just like any preacher you might hear uh, that might preach a message in one place and then at another place preach a similar message, but it's not exactly the same. They might draw the same points from their previous time that they preach, but they, they kind of go at a diff- different angle or something like that. Any preacher is like that. If you look through my preaching, you would find there are times where I preach uh, virtually the same stuff, you know, at different places, and it'll be, have a little different nuance to it, a little different emphasis here and there. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Luke 6, you're going to find that. You're going to find Jesus in Luke 6 preaching some of the same exact points, and then some of the points are similar with different emphases. Now, the reason why I bring that up is this. In Matthew 5, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not talking about financially poor. In Luke 6, he just leaves it as blessed are the poor. Different focus. I want to focus on the Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. This value is the first value on purpose. It's not speaking about financially poor, though he calls that blessed in Luke 6. What this is speaking of has to do with a spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now he makes it first on purpose because it's the entryway to the kingdom of God. There is no entrance to the kingdom of God unless a person becomes uh, not just aware, but embraces the, the concept that they are poor in spirit. You, in other words, you can't get saved unless you recognize you're needy. You, you can't. You will not enter the kingdom if you don't think you need Jesus. Now let me just take it a little further. If you imagine that you can just sort of add Jesus onto your existing lifestyle, and then now you're in the kingdom, that's a falsehood as well. When we come to Jesus, we come and we say, we are bankrupt, we are destitute, we are beggarly, we are poverty stricken, we have nothing, we can do nothing, we are nothing without you, we need you. That's how we come. That's what poor in spirit is. Poor in spirit is the recognition that as it relates to what you have to offer, what you're able to bring to the table, you are completely poverty stricken. You are totally destitute. You are bankrupt. Now that flies in the face of human arrogance. Most people don't believe that as it relates to who they are internally, as it relates to their spirituality or their emotion, emotions, uh, you know, their, their emotional makeup, most people will not agree that they are poverty stricken. Most people believe that they're pretty good. They've got something to offer. They're okay. They're basically good. They use things like, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. 
And they compare themselves among themselves. And in so doing, they're not wise because the comparison has nothing to do with any other human being. There's one comparison that matters. It's you and Jesus. So when that's the comparison that's employed, every human is completely destitute, totally poverty stricken. Now, here's the thing that we like to do as believers. We like to say, yes, yes, I need you, Lord. And and so now, since I've said I need you, now instead of being poor, I'm rich. And what we forget is the only way you and I are rich is because he's got the riches. (laughs) And somehow we translate it into, no, I'm rich now. And I watch believers and they will strut and throw their shoulders back and have this attitude and this air about them. You know, and we're king's kids and and all this stuff. And yes, we are children of the king. But you've got to remember, before you're a child of the king, you are a pauper in the gutter with nothing to offer. I mean, that's reality. You don't graduate from that. I'm not saying that we live in uh, recognition or live under the shame of our sin. No, we're delivered from that. We're justified. But what I'm saying is we have to have a real healthy understanding that without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we have nothing. Every day we wake up, it's I need you, Jesus, today, just like the first day you told him you needed him. It's, it, it, you don't graduate from spiritual poverty. You don't start off spiritually poor and now you're spiritually rich and now you sort of don't need the Lord. Come on. And this is what I watch. I watch believers all the time. They get saved. They fall in love with Jesus. They start serving the Lord. And what happens is they work real hard for God, but they barely even know God. They spend all this time doing stuff for Him and spend almost no time with Him. Beloved, If you live in revelation that you're poor in spirit, you will spend a ton of time telling him, I need you. I need you to breathe. I need you to live. I need you to move. I need you, Jesus, in every area of my life. I need you. I need you. I need you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him or ask him. And he'll direct your path. It's all. I need him for everything. You know know what I'm saying? You you can't just sort of in your mind, and we would never say it like this. If we put out the test, no one would ever answer the question this way. But I think the way we do is we segment our lives and we just think, well, there's certain things I can do without God and there's certain things I can do with God. Like, I've got gifts and talents, and I can do all these things, and the Lord just sort of bless my, my giftings. Look, he's the giver of the gift. You wouldn't even have it if he didn't give it to you. And it's the glory, it's for his glory if you actually employ it, and it does something for the kingdom value. Oftentimes, people employ their gifts, build all sorts of stuff. It does nothing for the kingdom, and they get proud about it, and it has no value. We are poverty stricken. That word, I looked it up. I was like, maybe there's a way around it. Maybe, maybe it doesn't mean it. Because I've preached this real hard. You are destitute. You are bankrupt. I've preached it real, real hard. I go, maybe I'm over preaching it. Let me give you the definitions that come from that Greek word. For poor, it means reduced to beggary. Destitute of wealth, position, influence, and honor. Lowly, afflicted, helpless, powerless, needy. Beloved, we have got to, I mean, really get it. It's what he said in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. It's the first value of the kingdom. We can't just sort of add Jesus on to our already existing you know, goodness and it just gets it, makes it better. No, we have no goodness of ourselves. All of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Every last one of us, as Paul said, 
We all deserve death. The wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fallen short of His glory. All of us have nothing. All of us need Him desperately. And, and what we can't do is get into this thing where we sort of graduate from needing Him. No, no. Every day. I need you, Jesus. Some of you, you know, saints that have been saved 30 or 40 years. I mean, it would be, it would be revival in your life if you would go back through and remember what it was like in the early days of your, of your salvation. Go back through and remember what it was like when you first met the Lord. Maybe you were 10. Maybe you were 15. And you met the Lord and it was, it was I mean, it was like inebriating. I mean, just the sense of, oh my goodness, God is real. I remember when I first got saved, I was 15 years old. And it was, oh my goodness, this is real. You're real. There's a real God. And I'm really yours. Oh, whoa. I mean, it would just blow. I would just sit there and go, this is real. All those stories are real. What does that Bible say? I would go, oh, giants. Whoa. I mean, just I read that and go, this is crazy what's in here. All these stories. Man, that Noah thing. Man. <laughs> that Jonah thing. That's real stuff. That Moses, that's, I was just, and it was blowing my mind. And, and just the sense of his nearness. I just talked to the Lord, go, you're really listening right now. You're actually paying attention to me right now. Hi, God. Like, you got it. Like, you're there with, I was like, oh my goodness. Some of you that have been saved a while, it would be helpful for you. Go back through and remember what it was like when you first got saved and, and the, the, the recognition of your need in the Lord and then with a fresh approach when you wake up tomorrow morning or when you go to bed tonight in recognition of those early days tell him I need you now just like I needed you then and I'll tell you what maturity looks like. Maturity looks like this. I realize I need you more than I realized I need you then. I knew I needed you, but oh God, how much more I need you. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Beloved, nobody gets into this thing strutting, sticking their chest out, Acting like they got it all together. Nobody gets in that way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. It's critical. It's point one, and it's critical. And this sets the stage for the rest of the value system. Because if you recognize that you're poverty stricken without him, then you, you posture yourself in a, in, a, in a place of need, in a, in a position of need. That, that changes how you act and how you receive and how you operate in the rest of the values. I wrote this. I said, if we had real understanding of our utter neediness without Jesus, we would never imagine that the Lord or anyone else owes us anything. If I really knew how much I need him, I would never go, how come you haven't taken care of me? You owe me, God. We would be so satisfied to not go to hell. If we really realize how destitute we are, anything, any little thing the Lord gives us, we would be so excited. Oh my God, thank you. You ever met somebody that's just really grateful? So grateful for little, just little things you, you do or say or just bless them in little way. I mean, that grateful heart. Beloved, that's, that's how we're to be. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for everything. Thank you, Lord, that I can breathe. I mean, I, I started thinking about it. 
You know, the Lord did so many cool things for us. He let us see in color. What if everything was black and white? What, what would be the reason for color? For our entertainment, clearly. Just, he likes us and he wants to do something interesting for us. Watch this. Why, why do you have taste buds? Everything could taste like cardboard. One flavor. Do you understand how needy, how much we rely on, on everything? It has to be from him. The person that's, need, that's in recognition of their need, they never flow over into an entitlement mentality. They live in gratefulness. They recognize trials as an opportunity and any good thing that comes their way, they give thanks to the Father of lights who gives every good thing. And then I, th- I thought about this. If somebody really understands their utter poverty, their utter poverty of spirit without Jesus, they would never imagine that they could perform or strive or do anything to sort of gain his favor. Think about it. So often we strive to try to get, you know, the Lord to like us or the Lord to bless us. We, we try to perform to prove to him that we're lovely, that, that, that we're worthy to be, to, to be loved. And, and, and if we really got it, that we are poverty stricken, there's nothing we can, we can do, to, 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 nothing we can offer him to gain his affection, to gain his love, we would never strive. Think about it. You've got a king. He lives in a beautiful billion dollar palace. He has everything possible afforded to him. He walks out the front door of his palace and there's paupers in the gutter. Is there anything that that pauper can do He's got rags on, covered in dirt and the smell of the street. Is there anything he can do to gain the affection of the king? No. But instead, the king comes over and loves. It's of him, beloved. It's not of us. If you understood your poverty before the Lord, you'd never strive to get his approval. You'd understand that the fact that he loves, the fact that he affirms, the fact that he delights, it's of him and not of you. Because you don't have anything to offer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. All right, next one. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This one is very dear to my heart. And it just I'll just give a minute of my own little testimony. I remember several years ago praying a prayer and asking the Lord, Lord, I want to desire you more than any earthly thing. I want to desire you more than money, more than relationships, more than position or power. I want to to love you and desire you more than anything. And I want you to become more beautiful to me than anything. More, More beautiful than any person, more beautiful than any temptation. I want to be so drawn to you that I am just so lovesick. I want you to be beautiful before me and I want to love you and long for you more than anything on the earth. And I prayed the prayer and nothing happened. And I went, Lord, maybe you didn't hear me exactly. I want to love you. I want you to see you as beautiful. I want to encounter you. I want to be drawn to you more than anything else. Nothing. And so I prayed that prayer for a series of several months until I forgot about it. And I figured the Lord forgot about it. It's just one of those things, you know, I guess this isn't working, you know. Move on to something else. It's in revival, you know, who knows? So we get back, that was when I was living in Kansas City. We get back to Atlanta and we start the house of prayer here. And, and the house of prayer grows and, and we end up going 24-7. 
Shortly after we go 24-7, something happens to me where I would be uh, in conversation or reading my Bible or doing nothing, watching TV or just random, and I would begin to weep. It would come on me instantly. And I had this cavernous desire in my, in my soul, a deep longing in my soul for the Lord. And it was bizarre for me because there was a couple times where I would be literally in the middle of a sentence. I'd be going, yeah, I was just going to, and I'd go, oh. and I'd start crying. People were like, whoa, what is going on? And there was days where I would spend two to four hours weeping and not pretty little weeping. I'm talking about crying out, crying at the top of my lungs with a pain, a longing in my soul for the Lord that I could feel. It was so deep, I could physically feel it. I was aching. And that went on for several months. And I didn't know what was going on. And I was fairly worthless. God bless our leadership team for <laughs> keeping the boat afloat for a few months. Because I, I was just worthless. I would, it would be, and it would be embarrassing. I would come in. There would be one person up leading a devotional worship. And it would be me and three other people in the prayer room. And I'd be in the back corner going, ah! I'd be yelling. Now we just have that person carried out. They were afraid to carry me out because you can't. I mean, it's like the director's back there. Whatever he's doing, <laughs> just leave him. <laughs> I guess, just keep going, you know. And I went through this season, and I I remember coming through it and thinking, what is, I'm losing my mind. Because all I care about is Jesus. All I want is Jesus. And I started understanding, like what Paul was talking about. He goes, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He goes, but I'll stay here, live on in the flesh Because that's better for everybody else. Because I was going, all I really want, Lord, is to see you. I just want to see you. I want to be with you. And then when it lifted, and all the way through I complained about it. And then when it lifted, all I wanted is I wanted it back. I wanted that, that pang in my soul, that longing for the Lord. And then after it lifted, I realized, oh, this was that prayer that I prayed a couple of years earlier. He was taking me through a season and ringing me out. He was making everything natural lose its value. All the natural things, they didn't have any luster anymore because all I wanted was him. And it was then that I began to understand what this value is about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is not talking about somebody who's going through a hard moment because of natural circumstances and they're mourning, maybe over the loss of a family or a friend, family member or a friend or something. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a lifestyle of longing that we live day in, day out, desiring Jesus above everything else. Blessed are those who mourn. See, Jesus, he explains what mourning is about in Matthew chapter 9. And uh, Matthew 9 verse 15, he says it this way. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's talking about this concept of spiritual mourning, longing for God, longing for Jesus to the extent where you say, I don't want anything else. I just want you. I don't even want natural sustenance. I just want you. Now that's the Bible. That sounds really radical in the West, but let me tell you something. Jesus wants us unto death. He died because he wants us. Do you think he wants a bride who's less interested in him than he is in her? 
He wants a comparable bride with a comparable desire for himself. And I tell you, if you will pray the prayers of desire and you will ask the Lord to grant you mourning in your soul, longing for him, he is so willing. He is so willing to meet you. Now, here's the thing. It gets messy. If you, if you go through a time of mourning or you live with, with mourning in your soul, which is really what he calls us to, to live a lifestyle of mourning, where you're longing for him. That's what it means. You're longing for him. You're mourning because he's been taken away. You're, you're longing because he's not here with us now. You do things that don't make sense. Like you take three days at the beginning of every month and you push back from the table and you just say, Lord, I want you. I want you. I'm going to put myself in a place of weakness to make myself susceptible for the, for the touch of your spirit. I'm, it's not that you earn anything. It's that you're just valuing him. You value him above everything else. If you'll ask him for it, I promise you, he will give it to you. And it, is, it can be messy. It can be messy. And it, it may not look like it makes sense to others. And here's what I want to say. There are people, you're listening to me right now, and you're going, wait, I've touched that. I, 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 I know I've touched that for a minute. And here's, what, here's the challenge of it. So, so often we lean into God and, and here's what happens. You lean in and you realize you don't have him the way you want him. You, you pursue the Lord and you realize there's so much more of him to encounter. So much deeper of, of, of intimacy that you can have with him. You, you move in and you go, oh, I'm destitute. And so you keep coming. And here's what happens. You think the gap between you and God is like, 10. And then you'll, you move in and you gain two more on the gap. But what happens is you get two more in, in revelation of God, but the gap actually gets bigger. You realize the gap was really 15. So while you're now at a three, you recognize the gap is now at a 12. You started off with the gap at a 10, you moved closer, but it's now gotten bigger. You move in more and, and you go to a six, but then you realize the gap is really 25. The more you encounter him, the greater the ache becomes. That's my point. And here's what happens. People will lean into the Lord and they will get to this place of pain and longing in their soul. And they get to the place where it's just, it just feels like too much. And so in the West, we have convenience, we have modern entertainment, we have all sorts of things that we anesthetize the ache in our soul by filling ourselves with other attractions and other focuses. And so what you'll have is a person begins to move into a lifestyle of longing and mourning and it gets to this place where it's just too painful. And what do they do? They begin to stuff themselves, medicate the longing in their soul with all, other, all these other attractions so they don't have to deal with the reality that the bridegroom's been taken away. That we're not with him. He lives in us but we're not with him yet. He speaks to us all the time, but we've never heard his voice. We feel him all the time, but we've never touched him. See, this is the portion of the redeemed that you live this life recognizing that there's so much more. We live through the glass darkly now. The most revelatory one among us, the one that's the deepest in intimacy with the Lord, the best they are on this side is seeing through a glass darkly. But there's a day coming. It's face to face. Face to face. Beloved, you and I all have a date with face-to-face -face encounter. Your destiny is face-to-face, -face, unhindered, unbridled encounter with the one who is love itself. This is your portion. But until then, we long. And until then, we mourn. 
Some of you, you've leaned in and it's gotten painful and you thought you were losing your mind. And I tell you, you're not going crazy. It's just how we live in this age. We live in longing. We live in desire. And every step closer, it makes us aware of the incredible gap that still remains. People are so ambitious about so many things in this life. I tell you, the only ambition that truly is worthwhile is the ambition of seeking the Lord. Drawing closer to Jesus. That's the only one that will satisfy your soul. Every other ambition will leave you longing. It will leave you empty. It will leave you dissatisfied. As you pursue the Lord, you'll get, it's so crazy, you get a measure of satisfaction and a measure of longing together. And you realize, you're what I was made for. You're what I was made for. I wasn't made for all these human attractions, all these earthly realities. I was made for you. See, eternity's written on your heart. Your heart knows. Your soul knows that you were made for more than this. Your soul knows that there's something inside of you desirous, and a million dollars won't satisfy it. A billion dollars won't satisfy it. There's something desirous in your soul, a longing inside, deep within. There's something in there that that knows that no matter what the natural thing is that you fill it with, it will not satisfy. Oh, I want to encourage you. Lean into longing. Lean in to mourning. Longing for the bridegroom. You know why? That doesn't come naturally. If you are longing for Jesus, it's the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit on your life. Why? Because no one seeks God. No, not one. And if you want him, it's because he's authored something in you. He's drawing you. He's drawing you. And you might live an entire life of desire and hunger and wanting God. You might look like a wreck at times. People may not completely understand you. Your family might think, wow, you're kind of, whoa, weird. But you live a life of longing because there's a day coming when you're going to be comforted. There's a promise of comfort. Your soul knows it very well. That's what David said in Psalm 42. It says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for God. My soul longs for God. You know, I don't fault people that are into drugs, that get into illicit relationships, that go blow their minds on all sorts of stuff. I don't fault them. And here's why. They're obeying the longing in their soul that's longing for God. They're just filling themselves full of stuff that will not satisfy. Every human has deep passions and deep cravings. They fill it with all sorts of stuff that doesn't satisfy. So I don't fault any of those folks. What I say is take your passion, take your longing, and direct it to the well that satisfies. Jesus, the living waters, he is the only one who will satisfy. So I don't fault those who have misappropriated desires. I'll tell you what the redeemed need. The redeemed need to go ahead and disconnect from all these other pursuits and, and, and set their heart on longing for God. That, that is, I mean, if, if the redeemed would laser focus their passions and then we would see a bride across the earth whose chief hunger and desire is Jesus, I tell you, that would be such a testimony. A church radically in love with Jesus would be a massive testimony to the unredeemed. As the deer pants, so my soul longs. I love it. See, the bridegroom, he's been taken away for a season. So now we mourn. I love Psalm 84. I'll just read this to you as we're landing. Another blessed is. Psalm 84, verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, 
Blessed is the man whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. That pilgrimage, a journey to God. That's what that's about. Blessed is the man whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, the valley of Baca is the valley of tears. Beloved, the whole of this life is the valley of tears. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The tears water the ground and actually bring life. The rain also covers it with pools. The Lord answers. They go from strength to strength. This is the journey of our life. And finally, each one appears before God. It's your portion. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. I love how David said it, Psalm 17. He was, as for me, I'll see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. He was talking about living life in this age is like sleeping until the day we see him when we awake. This is all a glass darkly. This is all the shadow. This, this age is all the shadow. But there's a day coming when we truly are going to see the Lord and encounter Him with fullness. And oh, for that day. Oh, for that day. But until then, blessed are those who mourn. It's a blessing to live your life with a pang of desire. At seasons, it will be unbearable. At seasons, it will be manageable. But don't lose the longing. Don't lose the longing, church. People get so satisfied with so little. And you know it's not what you were made for. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. So there you have it. Poor in spirit, we're always needy. Spiritual mourning, we're always longing. These are values that we're to live by. These are not good ideas. These are values. We need to ask the Lord to give us the grace of these values imparted to our soul. Amen. All right, let's stand. I'll confess to you that when I preach about spiritual mourning, I have to preach it safe. What I mean is if I, if I go in with my whole heart and connect my whole heart to that message, I find myself right back in that place where the Lord took me five years ago. I will melt down. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that well. I remember when I was in Kansas City, a brother, he asked me, he said, if you could have anything in the kingdom, if there was a platter before you and you could have anything in the kingdom, you could raise the dead, you could lead a million people to the Lord, you could heal cancer and AIDS, or you could see Jesus, and he named all these things. He goes, which one would you choose? And without hesitation, I said, raise the dead. And he said, that's the difference between you and me. He goes, all I want is to see him. And immediately my heart was pierced through. I realized anything that I could do for the Lord is pitiful compared to him as the prize and how misdirected my focus had been. The Lord helped me. He messed me up real good. It's a great longing of my heart is him now. And oh, for all of us to have that longing for it to, to deepen even to a place where it's unmanageable. We're so tidy. Fasting and weeping and mourning, that just doesn't sound tidy to me. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray you touch our hearts with love sickness. You touch our hearts with spiritual mourning. I pray you would, you would break the, the coldness off of us. 
where we've been dry and barren. God, I pray you'd bring us in recognition of our spiritual poverty, our great need. God, some of us, we've been so stuffed with other things. Maybe it's not even necessarily sin. It's just things that are taking your attention. Oh, he wants to release longing in your soul. We're like the kid who spoils our appetite. We fill up on chips and candy and Cokes. He wants to release a real appetite. That we would pursue Him and seek for Him as for treasure, gold and silver and precious jewels. This is the value of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Come, Holy Spirit.